If China were to take Taiwan, it would be able to break into the Pacific Ocean. It'd be able to send its ships there unimpeded. That's one of the things that's keeping China from being a blue water navy, we call it. What can Americans learn from Taiwan when it comes to conducting elections right? In this episode, I sit down with Adam Savitt, director of the China Policy Initiative at the America First Policy Institute. He was recently in Taiwan to observe the elections. What is the significance of Taiwan for America? What they're doing is trying to get behind that first layer of defenses, which we call the first island chain. Then there's that second layer that they're trying to do a back around play. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kelleck. Adam Savitt, such a pleasure to have you on American Thought Leaders. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Well, Adam, you've been out in uh, Taiwan. Now you're in Japan. Um, you were in Taiwan for the election. And uh, I have to say, you know, Taiwan elections, I, I've watched a number of videos. I haven't actually watched it on the ground, but I've watched kind of video of the actual uh, tabulation of the voting happening. And, it, you know, it's this incredible community event. It's wildly transparent. Um, and I just think, you know, Probably we could learn a lot from this. So why don't we actually start there? Sure. I, I did have that thought when I was on the ground is that Americans should actually be jealous of the Taiwanese election process, the entire uh, spirit around it, as well as the technicalities of how they do it. And yes, I will do the actual motion, which is like this. They always do because literally they hold the piece of paper. They look up like this. They have observers. That's how the ballot is counted. They use paper. They use a pencil. Uh, not only that, they have to show up at their precise precinct where they are. Uh, re they receive a notice in the mail to come to a very specific location. Uh, if they're, it has to be in their hometown. If they're away, uh, you know, we had a guide uh, helping us out in Taipei, the capital and the largest city. Uh, his hometown was way down south in Taiwan, so he, uh, at some point during the day, hopped a train. Uh, high-speed rail, which they have a nice train, but it still takes about three hours to get all the way down south. And he voted in his uh, home district, not only within Taiwan. If you are stationed overseas, if you're working overseas, um, for any reason, you physically have to come back. So there's an absolute uh, regrouping of Taiwanese expatriates from the U.S., uh, from Japan, from wherever they are. Uh, now, part of that, actually, they told me, is because you've got tens of thousands of Taiwanese businessmen who are in China because it's sort of unavoidable for them to do business with China. They're so physically close. Um, and in the decades preceding uh, the, uh, the more authoritarian Xi regime, uh, a lot of them went there uh, on business and some of them still remain. Uh, it's, almost, it's certainly a recognition uh, that the malign influence of the CCP is there and they will not take chances with remote voting uh, from mainland China. They want to see that piece of paper in their hand. Well, and, and there's a few things here. You know, one of them is also that you kind of, you need, if you want to participate in the process, you have to go back. That's, I don't know if that's necessarily, you know, absolute for the U.S. or Canada or something like that, but you can see how that helps you kind of reconnect right, with, with your country and your community. You have to go to your actual community. That, that, it's very interesting. And the thing that kind of strikes me about it uh, is also that the, the vote counting, it's a, an event. Like, people come out all, you know, of all ages and they're watching, and it's, like, it's actually like a kind of a big spectacle of sorts. 
Absolutely. Well, you, you know, as foreigners, we were on a delegation, a small delegation of four. Uh, I had my colleague, the chair of our China policy initiative at AFPI, Steve Yates, was leading the delegation. Uh, we had a journalist, we had a pollster, and we were able to see a great deal. We were able to get into the party headquarters, but on the actual uh, election day, we weren't able to get into the precinct. But um, we did watch with a group of Taiwanese citizens, the returns come in, uh, again, to emphasize the fact that the returns came in and they were counted and complete by 8 or 8.30 p.m. on the night of the event. But what we did get to witness as far as how the uh, average people experienced their elections, we went to a rally of the DPP, uh, which has been the ruling party for eight years and now will be for another four years because their candidate did win the presidency. And they claimed there was 100,000 people there. I don't know about that, but it was a full stadium, a mid-sized stadium maybe 40 to 50,000 people. In any case, it was very impressive. They're not quite as rowdy as an American uh, audience. It's a, it's a different culture. Everyone is sort of focused on the same thing. There are sort of these parameters. It almost feels like each candidate is, is sort of a trained announcer. It's like a show. It's a real, it's a real almost choreographed show. And actually, uh, when we first arrived, we were able to visit the DPP headquarters. Their theme was Team Taiwan, and actually they had the English letters on these jerseys, and it was a baseball theme. And basically in their headquarters was a big baseball diamond. And they had all these uh, screens going, and they had themed t-shirts. They had uh, these erasers that they came up and handed to us and said, this is to erase Chinese disinformation. It's a very vigorous um, and, and real uh, um, engagement by the public, for sure. Well, and I just might mention, since you, you mentioned it here, is that this Chinese disinformation from mainland China, from the communist regime, is actually massive in Taiwan. They have control of multiple of the largest media companies, if, you know, let's say, let's say very strong influence in some cases, if not control, okay? Um, you know, kind of pushing the Beijing Beijing line and so forth. So this is actually interesting. And now, what are what are the implications? Like, you know, I'm I'm thinking about the Epoch Times headlines. You know, this is something that Beijing didn't want, right? And so, but but kind of tell me a little bit about that relationship, since you've actually been talking to these people on the ground, and and so forth. Uh, I think it is definitely something that Beijing didn't want, in the sense that. There are three parties, and we can dig down into that a little bit, but taking the two main parties, that's the DPP, and that's who won. And that is the most uh, clearly anti-Beijing party. But the thing is, you still can't say they're pro-independence because they haven't come out and said that, just like the United States has strategic ambiguity, even though we do support Taiwan. We don't say Taiwan is independent. That actually is the stated policy. And the DPP has made that same calculation that it's needlessly provocative to go all the way and say, we are an independent nation. But yes, Beijing would have preferred the other major party, which is the KMT. That was the party of Chiang Kai-shek. So that was the nationalist party on the mainland, uh, is actually our ally in World War II. Uh, and he, after World War II, was facing off against Mao and the Communist Party. That civil war raged until 1949, when uh, Mao and the communists pushed the nationalists off of mainland China into Taiwan. So that's actually still that original party. Uh, it's been called the oldest political party in Asia, and that's probably accurate. Uh, but that party actually became an authoritarian regime under Chiang once it hit Taiwan. So 
uh, Taiwan actually did not have free and open elections for decades after it's being formed. Um, 1986 is when the dictatorship uh, loosened up strings a little bit, had some local elections, um, was not the only party, uh, but it wasn't until 1996 that the presidential race was open to other parties. Um, so uh, ironically, even though the KMT was actually the, the, the people that fought a war uh, with the CCP, uh, they are also sort of the, um, let's say the residue of those millions of Chinese who were bumped out of China uh, into Taiwan. And so they still have sort of a longing or an assumption that one day they will connect back with the mainland. Now, really, they also are not under the illusion that this CCP regime, especially under uh, Xi, who's gotten more radical, is going to be uh, so unproductive to uh, re return to, if you will. But they are much more accommodationist. I did hear people uh, saying, hey, you know, China is huge. China is right there across the straits. We're going to have to live with them. And and being um, needlessly provocative is is the wrong uh, tack. Right. Well, you know, before we talk about this third party, which is, I understand is a kind of, you know, pop in a, in a sense, a populist uh, party, but it's these these categories actually don't work very well. Before we go there, let's just talk a little bit about the importance of Taiwan vis-a-vis -vis the U.S.-China relationship. China is arguably, you know, the, the biggest strategic threat to the U.S. Some people say it's the only actual strategic threat. Um, now, in Taiwan, sort of sitting there, um, you know, very close, uh, being, you know, with this, uh, let's call it propaganda, that it absolutely is going to become part of the mainland. It's a central theme of Xi Jinping, the Chinese dictator. And, and at the si same time, there's the U.S. kind of watching uh, and also, you know, involved in a whole bunch of different, uh, let's call them altercations around the world right now. So what is the importance of Taiwan to the U.S.? Why should Americans care? Well, yeah, I would like to emphasize, um, you know, some of the discourse on the America first right, uh, which AFPI, of course, identifies with. We're America first policy institute. Um, some of it does veer into sort of a cynical um, and I think incorrect view of Taiwan. Uh, um, you know, uh, presidential candidate Vivek Ramaswamy, he recognized that the semiconductors, those advanced microchips that Taiwan specializes in producing, you know, he, he recognizes that as a uh, strategic value to the U.S. But basically what he said was once that is off uh, short to the U.S. or to other countries, then uh, we could abandon Taiwan to the predations of China. I think that's absolutely wrong. Uh, uh, just uh, one other example, a huge example, is that the way that shipping lanes run, uh, for example, from the Middle East, uh, where you have natural gas and oil flowing through and much other trade that's going around through the Malacca Straits past Singapore and then up Southeast Asia, it passes right by Taiwan in order to get to our allies, Japan and South Korea, two of the biggest economies in the world. If that trade is disrupted, there would be massive uh, ramifications for the U.S. economy and the U.S. strategically, militarily, um, because if China were to take Taiwan, it would be able to break into the Pacific Ocean. It'd be able to send its ships there uh, unimpeded. Uh, that's one of the things that's keeping uh, China from being a blue water Navy, we call it, uh, meaning that they can deploy uh, their ships 
all over the world the way the United States does. Now the United States is the only true blue water Navy in the world, uh, meaning we deploy in the Middle East. We deploy, uh, what we see right now, we, we deploy in order to protect the shipping lanes in the Red Sea uh, from the Houthis, which leads up to the Suez Canal, which is a uh, uh, absolutely crucial uh, shipping lane for the world. So actually you could compare uh, the waters off Taiwan to that, except there's even much more volume going through those lanes than there is uh, through the Red Sea. Uh, so, so that's just one a huge example. You were talking a little bit about the, the the kind of the spirit. I mean, this is you you talked about how this is a you know basically a brand new democracy. I mean, thirty you know thirty odd years in, um, and so there's this kind of uh, spirit to to do the democratic process and do it right, and at the same time, the realization of this external threat that's you know is exerting sort of massive influence, sometimes through these, you know, business people that are, you know, kind of deeply embroiled in there, but in all in all sorts of ways. And some of it is just, you know, these kind of, you know, over overflights of military jets, which I'm sure you encountered while you were there, just to remind people, you know, who's just across the strait and that you have to, you know, kind of play along to kind of instill fear. It's just, it's it's a very uh, unusual climate in, in its entirety to me. Um, it is, you know, I wasn't aware of any overflights um, while I was there, but uh, I think the day we landed or right before um, there was probably the viewers have heard of this missile test or it was unclear whether it was a satellite launch or a missile test. But Taiwan has an emergency text and broadcast system. And the English translation of that text said that there was a missile missile launch. Now, apparently in the, you know, in their native language, it actually said a satellite launch, but in international uh, uh, reports, it, it said that now, and actually, frankly, whether on purpose or not, that's sort of cognitive warfare right there, which makes people upset. Um, but uh, yeah, as far as the, the precarious uh, situation that Taiwan is in, I kept, as I was there, I kept on thinking of Israel, you know, where I have been on the ground before. And it's, it's a very similar situation where you have sort of a relatively small, fragile democracy on the borders, you know, with Israel, it's land borders, but they're surrounded by, you know, mortal enemies who are wishing them to be gone. Taiwan, it's a little different, at least they're separated by about 100 miles of sea. Uh, it would take a much uh, more difficult invasion. But, um, you know, Beijing has other methods uh, to use. Um, and yes, they are conducting a um, election under significant duress. Um, but it actually struck me that, um, you know, we were there, I think, uh, maybe two days before and we stayed one day after. You know, there was this intensity built up around the election. Um, but once the election was over, life goes back to normal. Um, and uh, part of that was reflected, uh, as you notice, or as you noted, uh, in that existence of that third party. So let, let me know if you want me to drill down on that or. Absolutely. Like Jump in. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, th that party is called the TPP. Um, and as I mentioned, the DPP, it gets a little confusing here because they're all three letters, but, uh, and I won't go into the actual names, that would just be confusing. So the DPP is the more aggressive towards China and the KMT is the more conciliatory towards China. And, you know, it's funny or it's natural that I go to the, those um, uh, metrics to tell you about those parties because there is no 
a direct correlation between left Democrat, right Republican, which an American would understand uh, coming to this polit political situation. It is largely defined by their relationship to China because that is the dominant uh, question uh, politically in their lives. Because of that, though, for the first time, there's a fairly large third party. And that third party, as you mentioned, I, I agree with the word populist in the sense um, that they're saying, you know, listen, these other parties have been focused on this China threat. Yes, it's it, it's real. But, you know, they've been ignoring our everyday concerns. You know, they have the same problems everyone in the world is having now. Um, inflation, uh, yeah, cost of living, uh, health care. Um, and uh, they feel that these uh, questions have been ignored. And especially the youth who are, um, you know, are disillusioned uh, and also kind of detached uh, from the violent uh, and oppressive history of actually living under uh, the CCP. Uh, it's almost, it's a populist party and it's kind of an escapist party. It's sort of, they're throwing all of these um, sort of random ideas into a pot, making a promise. Um, and they know that as a third party, they'll never actually have to govern. So they really don't um, have to go in depth on, on these policies. But it was enough that they got a good share of the vote. I think it, it was something like 25%. So the, so the winner, DPP, was something like 40%. And then the KMT was somewhere in the 30s. And they were 25%. Now, of course, um, the presidency is winner take all. So they, they lost that. But uh, we've got their parliament. Um, and it's a strange sort of um, hybrid system. So they do have districts the way in the U.S. we have congressional districts, so they're geographic. So you'll have a vote there uh, where the winner takes all, right? So in that district, the winner wins. If it's DPP, they get that seat. But then there's this other part of the system where um, the voter gets a third. So they get a presidential vote. They get their local representative vote. Then they get this other party vote. And those party votes are added up. And the percentages of those party votes are uh, grant them um, a certain amount of this other pie of, of legislators. I know it sounds it's it is quite confusing. Actually, there were Taiwanese that we were with who didn't know about this system, <laughs> so that, or exactly how it worked. You know, much the same way Americans might not know the ins and outs totally of of caucuses and uh, the, the way electoral votes work and this sort of thing. So. Um, that is how it works. And essentially, the DPP uh, came out with 51 seats. I think the KMT came out with 52. But then there's nine with that third party, the TPP. And this is the first time where no party had a majority. And therefore, the TPP will be the kingmakers. The TPP uh, will determine what legislation can be passed and what will come to William Lai, the new president, DPP's uh desk. And the DPP is very concerned that that will mean that weapon systems from the U.S. will not be funded. Um, they'll be cut back uh, or, or they'll be removed entirely. Well, so let's talk about that, actually, because, you know, there's, this is one big uh, question right now, frankly, in American politics um, is, you know, how much of this, you know, military aid or military spending or military support should we be providing outside of the country? Um, th that's a real serious consideration um, or serious question. And we should give consideration to each 
um, situation uniquely because each situation is unique. Um, you know, the first thing I think of and the, first, and the thing that we as Americans have been having a discourse about for almost two years now is, of course, the war in Ukraine. So that is the most that's the front burner issue regarding foreign military aid. Um, now, again, I'll go back to our America first frame uh, at AFPI. So uh, when this war first started, I think Russia uh, aggressively and unprovoked uh, attacked and invaded the sovereign uh, uh, territory of Ukraine. Also, Russia is an adversary of the United States. There's no doubt about that. Uh, and Ukraine, Ukraine had every right to defend itself. And I think that we uh, were right uh, strategically to give some support to Ukraine in the form of arms, in the form of aid, etc. Now, somewhere along the line, we got to the point now we're we're a hundred billion dollars plus into an investment of aid into uh, Ukraine, and most importantly, there is no endpoint. There's no stated limitation on this aid, and there is no goal. So, what is the metric we use to um, measure the effectiveness of this aid, and when will this aid ever end? Essentially, um, so that that is something to be very concerned about. But that is one situation. Uh, Taiwan is another situation. Um, and again, it, uh, what Taiwan gets uh, as far as um, military equipment from the United States is not aid. They're actually paying for it one way or another. In fact, they have uh, uh, orders backed up. And part of that is our supply chains in relation to Ukraine, because so much of our efforts have gone there. Um, but, but it's also uh, problems just with our industrial capacity in general and, and our supply chains. Um, and Taiwan you know, is ready, willing, and able uh, to pay and to defend itself. Um, it, it is um, diversifying now away from huge weapon systems, uh, expensive airplanes, expensive ships. It is going the route of asymmetrical uh, uh, equipment and an asymmetrical, asymmetrical strategy. And um, uh, DPP officials were mentioning that uh, things like standoff weapons, meaning uh, missiles that can hit mainland uh, China. It, it, it'll never match the missile fleet of China, but it's there as a deterrence. Um, and Taiwan has proven that they can pay for the weapons. Uh, they have a serious plan about how to use the weapons. And it's really a net benefit uh, for the United States. So what do you think the ultimate impact of the election going this way is on the U.S. and on, uh, you know, sort of friendly nations like Canada, my own home country, and so forth? You know, it sounds strange to say I don't think it has a definitive uh, Im impact, or I don't think it'll have an extreme impact on the overall trajectory of this situation. If the KMT got in, uh, they would be a little bit more soft, a little bit more conciliatory towards China. But uh, strangely, a good thing is that she has been so extreme that across the political spectrum in Taiwan, as well as the U.S., uh, these parties and the, and, and the average person is realizing uh, the threat. And I think from China's end, uh, they're not really going to change their tactics either. I think it's, it's still not in their interest to launch an actual, you know, hot kinetic um, uh, uh, war on Taiwan because other methods have been uh, fairly uh, successful on their own. Um, and this is the gray zone tactics. Uh, this means um, 
uh, well, as you mentioned, an example would be the uh, the satellite missile launch on the day before the election. Uh, they are constantly sending dozens of military aircraft as well as um, sea craft across uh, the demarcation line in the Taiwan Strait. They have a full blitz on Taiwan media. Uh, they own or influence uh, big, uh, large uh, organs within uh, the traditional uh, Taiwan media. They have social media influencers. Um, some of them are openly marked on Twitter and elsewhere, but some are either, uh, you know, live propagandists or bots. Uh, these are operative on TikTok. Um, I did ask someone on the ground whether TikTok is present in in Taiwan because some of the work we've done at AFPI has been to combat uh, TikTok in the United States, and it it's it's um, it, it's really a conundrum because um, it it brings up questions of you know corporate independence and uh, persecuting one individual company, it, it really is a hard nut to crack in a free country uh, like the United States. Now, they said they did have TikTok. Um, they claimed that the Taiwanese government is actually more effective at filtering it to some degree. I also asked them if they had WeChat. Now, if people are, are familiar with WeChat, that's literally a CCP chat client, it just proven to be a CCP subsidiary. And that's even available there which is kind of puzzling, you know, but, you know, this gentleman was saying anyone in the know is not using WeChat, but that's still there as, as a channel as well. And another thing they said is even if it's um, a known propaganda outlet or it's a suspect outlet, you're still getting these things flashing in front of your face. You're seeing these articles. And unlike us, where we see the filter in English, uh, for example, the Global Times is a big China propaganda outlet. You can go on the Internet. You can read that stuff. Hopefully you understand what you're reading. But uh, it's through it's through some sort of a filter. But but they are Mandarin readers. So this is stuff that's flying in front of them through different uh, overt or covert. Um, and I'll use the word they're sort of marinating in this uh, Mandarin media environment, which you've got 1.3 billion Chinese who are flooding it. Yeah, I mean, and when you say filter, you mean, you know, your own filter, like understanding that you're seeing something that has, uh, you know, sort of political uh, decision making behind it. I mean, this is the challenge with TikTok, wherever it appears, frankly, in one place, by the way, it doesn't appear, of course, is mainland China, because, uh, you know, you, you, right. you can draw, exactly. your, draw your own conclusions from that. I mean, I... I have a number of episodes I've done with people sort of explaining how this, how the TikTok system functions. But I, I, I've also understood that with TikTok, um, you can, uh, you can view TikTok as an espionage issue, aside from a sort of massive influence issue, right? Which is where, you know, for example, you have, you know, within a fairly short time, a whole bunch of TikTok, American TikTok users thinking to themselves, yeah, you know, Osama bin Laden, he, he had some good points there in his letter, right? And not that they've ever read it. Yes. Um, you just you just have these influencers, which then can, you know, the, the dial can be dialed up or dialed down, depending on the kind of interest, depending on the algorithm, which really amounts to the interests of the Chinese regime, since this company is, you know, sort of beholden, beholden to those to the, the security state there. Now, so, so this is this is the climate, right? I mean, most people don't realize that on the ground. Obviously, TikTok is being used as a massive influ influence operation there, as certainly as WeChat in terms of surveillance and so forth. 
Listen, it's either they don't realize it, and maybe some of them don't. I feel like in Taiwan, that's probably the place where they're most educated on it. But but the problem is, even if they do, even if they are educated on it, it still works in a way because it's addictive. It's crazy, you know. It's like uh, it's it's like you're compelled. And and again, um, uh, I, I, I would point to the more traditional, um, you know, newspaper mastheads uh, like the Global Times and. Sometimes I'll I'll Google, I'll look at the result, I'll look at the title, I'll look at the little sub headline, and I'll say, oh, that must be, uh, that'll stick in my head in a way. And and as much as I know that that is CCP propaganda, it's it's made an impression. And, and you know, sometimes you'll be reading stuff and you'll bring it up in a conversation and you'll sort of forget, oh, where exactly did I hear that? You know, and was that true or was that not? You know, that it even works in that traditional sense with with uh, we, we professionals who are, you know, supposed to be, uh, you know, uh, you know, very picky with the, the sort of information that gets uh, through that filter. So I can't imagine on the ground in Taiwan reading Mandarin directly and all of the uh, all of the CCP's best propaganda is focused at you. Well, and I, you know, it also reminds me of, uh, and I don't think this is the case anymore, uh, or at least certainly not regularly anymore, but these large, you know, incredibly well-produced supplements that uh, the China Daily would place in the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal once upon a time, but with, with a, you know, tiny note saying this is sponsored content or whatever. So given that uh, Taiwan is uh, obviously an independent country, you know, by, by, almost any measure, you, rational measure you might use. Um, and at the same time, there's this, you know, one China policy, uh, the doctrine of strategic ambiguity, um, and so forth. What are the implications of President Biden saying it doesn't, the U.S. doesn't support China, Taiwan independence? Well, there, there's a couple of issues going on here. Number one, we do have the baseline reality of the uh, the one China policy, and that's that since 1979 um, and under the Taiwan Relations Act, uh, we recognize Beijing as the address uh, for the, the, the Chinese state. Uh, that has, has all kind of awkward uh, implications because also it obligates us to also arm Taiwan or, or provide Taiwan with the tools needed to defend itself. So that's already an, an awkward situation. But uh, we also have the issues of the communication uh, style, let's put it that way, of, of President Biden. And it seems whenever he's asked, he'll blurt out something uh, different. Now, um, in this case, that is actually accurate. We, we actually don't uh, endorse uh, Taiwanese independence. Um, but it's strategically unwise for the president of the United States after uh, our, you know, the, our preferred, ostensibly preferred party, which is uh, more um, uh, aggressive towards uh, China has just won the election. So, um, you know, the president shouldn't be emphasizing that and stating that emphatically um, at this point in time. But yes, that is the, the stated uh, reality of U.S. policy. Well, the, the, the other piece, though, right, is that Taiwan is a country. <laughs> with its own sure. governance and, and, sure. and robust democracy, right, as we've been discussing yes. in this interview, right? And, and yes. while it doesn't have, a, you know, an embassy in the United States, it does have, a, a, you know, a trade office, which effectively functions as an embassy. 
Um, so, the, I mean, this right. is because this is sort of, I don't know if this is the elephant in the room. It's not really. It's like, yeah, Taiwan's been an independent country for a long time. It's not, it, it, it has it nothing just, to do with Beijing, actually, from its own perspective. It, it's very odd. I mean, it's just existing in this weird, uh, falling between the cracks uh, of of what a state is. You know, I, you know, we can get, it's sort of a philosophical question of what uh, makes a state and does it need UN recognition? Does it need US recognition? Um, or is it a, um, a political unit which has its own elections and has its own army and uh, conducts its own uh, foreign policy? And uh, under those definitions, it is a state. And I think that's part of why uh, even the DPP, which is more independent minded, finds that it's not worth it right now to declare that independence because they're getting a lot of the benefits of independence um, uh, w without that crazy provocation of uh, China. At the same time, they are pursuing um, diplomatic priorities. I think it is a dozen exactly states that are left that recognize Taiwan as the as the uh, as the one China. And and indeed, one did drop off. That was one um, uh, result of the election. And, and I'm sure that the CCP twisted the arm and it's called Nauru. It's the second least populous country in the world. It's a it's a Pacific Island country of like 15,000 people. Uh, but it's important. And and um, th this gets back to the regional strategic picture, which is that um, those small Pacific countries, which are islands that are spread across thousands of miles and they have a few thousand people, but their territory covers thousands of miles. And those thousands of miles are the territory that the U.S. military would have to traverse if they need to get over to Taiwan and China in the case of uh, a war. So this is our backyard where China can be building military bases. They um, are trying to do so on the Solomon Islands, uh, where Australia used to have some influence, but uh, now China is is uh, putting their claws in there. And, and what they're doing is trying to get uh, behind that first layer of defenses, which we call the first island chain, consisting of Japan, Taiwan, Philippines, uh, and perhaps even further down, depending on how you um, define it. Then there's that second layer that they're trying to, you know, do a back around play. And a lot of that is uh, influence in the Pacific uh, uh, island nation. Well, yeah, you know, in fact, I've had a number of leaders, one uh, leader from one of the states in, uh, in the Solomon Islands, who now no longer uh, is in this position because he decided to stand up against the communist regime's influence in, the, in that country. And similarly, former President Penuelo of the Federated States of Micronesia, which is much closer to the U.S., has that kind of, has that, you know, special relationship, I forget the term right now for that, but um, again, emphasizing how powerful, like he had, he had uh, stories where the Chinese ambassador to FSM was, would literally, when he was on, you know, mission somewhere, would literally be walking behind him and telling him what he should be saying and what positions he should be taking, which he took, you know, issue with, of course, but um, that, that's the kind of thing that happens out there at the moment. Uh, that's very haunting and, and <laughs> but I believe it. And, um, I think, I think it's called the compact countries, although I could Correct. be wrong too, but yes. That's there, exactly three, right. Yeah. Yeah. So there, there's three countries. They're independent countries, but actually uh, the U.S. is responsible for their defense and some other diplomatic functions. Um, 
so they're sort of client states in a way, and it's Marshall Islands, um, uh, Micronesia, as you mentioned, and I think Palau. But these are um, three contiguous uh, uh, island states with huge ocean areas around them, which if you look at it on a map, literally it's like the middle of where we would need to jump to get to China. Uh, and we ignored uh, these states and we really were out to lunch um, um, on that on that question. Um, you know, one thing I wanted to mention very briefly before I take us to because I want to talk a little bit about Japan, where you are now, and why you're there on your way on your way back sure. to to DC. Um, this gray zone warfare that you're describing uh, that the CCP engages in. Now that you mentioned, you know, uh, the, these the sort of overflights to remind people, you know, who's in charge. You know the media control and so forth. Of course, these are elements, but there's other elements which are actually, um, you know, physical. For example, you know this this the mer what what's a merchant marine for China is very different than the merchant marine sure. for the U.S. You know, we've got you've got reinforced hulls, you've got you know electronics that are basically you know built to deal to be be able to interface with the Chinese military. I mean the 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 merchant marine in China function can can function and does sometimes function as an arm of the PLA and that's very interesting. Yeah. But there's this there's just that as a model is something that China kind of applies across the board. Another one would be, you know, Huawei, right? Why why are Huawei products so incredibly cheap all over the world? Right. And, and how they've gotten this foothold. Well, because there's a strategic imperative here. It's not just like doing business. Right. Sure. Sure. I mean, they, yeah, they'll, they'll weaponize literally every aspect of I mean, if, if you leave any avenue or lane open, they will fill it. I, I guess I'll call them ingenious on on that point. I mean, um, you know, some some people will say they're evil geniuses and also, you know, they wait in terms of centuries rather than years. And they have, I don't know if they're that incredibly genius, but like they just simply have the weight of numbers and the weight of will, which is like this totalitarian dictatorship, which wants to retain control and expand its control. Um, well, so yes. If I, Madam, if you don't mind me jumping in, they also have the uh, aid of the permissiveness of free nations for them to do yeah. all these things. Well, just if I could add that, yeah. Oh yeah, it's 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 not one-sided. I mean, if you know, we we, we often say the the key to defeating the CCP is American prosperity and and bolstering the American homeland and you know American pride, strength, all that stuff. This is absolutely opportunistic. I mean, the the U.S. has the potential. It still is the biggest economy, but the U.S. has the the potential to have just a roaring economy, to have the biggest and best military, which is a deterrent, which which would help us avoid war. It's not um, it would not cause uh, war. And um, and yet we were asleep at the wheel while China um, came in through research projects and through corporate acquisitions, taking tons of uh, intellectual property uh, through uh, hundreds of thousands of students an issue that we've dealt with a great deal at AFPI, which is um, the question of agricultural land as well as strategic land near infrastructure and military bases. Again, who was thinking about this? Like, you know, who was thinking that they could buy tracts of a few hundred acres that are within five miles of a military base? Like, no one, you know, so they saw an opening. They went for it. It's legal. 
like you're saying, we, we're open societies. We don't we don't think to check. You know, we have other countries investing. When we looked at this question, um, I think you know it's Canada, Germany, Italy are like some of the top investors in U.S. land. And what are they using that for? Like uh, timber, wine, this sort of thing. We we're, we're not thinking that someone's going to take this land and do something nefarious with it. And that's exactly where the CCP finds that crack and goes in. Well, listen, as we finish up, let's talk a little bit about Japan. Japan is obviously an incredibly important U.S. ally in Asia. Um, and so you're passing through there, I guess, uh, on your way back here. Um, tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, I would, I would like to emphasize that for, for anyone who doesn't see it that way. I, I think they're the absolute key um, uh, of course, Taiwan itself, the health of Taiwan itself, their military is key. But uh, Japan is, is is really the top ally in this uh, region and is incredibly important because it is still the number three uh, economy. It is uh, democratic, you know, and since since World War Two has had a strong, strong democratic uh, um, tradition. Uh, it has a direct treaty alliance with the United States. Um, so if Japan goes to war, we go to war. And the thing is, with Taiwan, uh, there's no question, and many people might not know this, that, that um, Japan would be drawn into that war immediately. Uh, part of that is because uh, the, you know, t uh, we think of the, the main islands of Japan and people in their head can sort of think of it. But there's this long archipelago, hundreds of miles of these little islands. One of them is Okinawa, so people have heard of that maybe, and that's the largest one. But they go all the way down to Taiwan, and the last one is only 90 miles off of Taiwan. So if China were to invade Taiwan, they would need to neutralize those Japanese islands. And in fact, Japan is fortifying those islands. And I, I talked to some people here who are involved in that reform. Um, and they are positioning, just as I said in Taiwan, they're positioning standoff weapons. They're positioning missiles that can reach into China on those islands. So there's just no question that China will hit those islands. And also, uh, Japan hosts tens of thousands of US troops. We have uh, huge naval bases there. We have air force bases there. We are completely integrated defense-wise with them. And China will fire on those US bases too. So um, a discussion I just had today with some retired military officials about communication between the US and Japan military coordination what forces would need to be, uh, U.S. forces need to be in Japan for this kind of contingency? What is Japan able to contribute? Um, and another big part of what Japan is going through is, of course, uh, since World War II, they've had a pacifist constitution. Mm. Um, so technically, they're not even supposed to have a military. They're not supposed to have an, uh, an army, a navy, an air force. They call it the Japan Self-Defense Force. Okay, so that's the way they frame it. But since China has been on the rise and since uh, uh, President Xi especially, um, they're recognizing that this is a real uh, present threat on their doorstep. And they uh, uh, underlined that for me. They said, we're here on the front line. Um, you know, you, you, you sit back there, you understand the threat. We feel this uh, uh, coming down our neck. Um, and also from North Korea. North Korea is testing missiles that are going over Japan. So they're really a frontline state. Talk about Israel, talk about Taiwan. Japan is a um, is a frontline state. Um, Adam, this has been a fascinating conversation. Any final thoughts as we finish? 
since since I'm sitting here in Japan, yeah, I would I would just say because uh, I'm I'm having this experience right now. You know, we we have we have great allies here. We have um, real serious thinkers uh, that are thinking about uh, the future of Japan, and also have a I'm perceiving a real care, affection, um, and you know willingness to work with and help the United States. You know, and um, as I as I said, they're still a powerful country. Um, uh, they understand the threat of China, um, and it, it's just been a wonderful, illuminating experience to be able to talk with them. And you know, I hope I hope that we will collaborate and and confront this problem uh, together. Well, Adam Savitz, it's such a pleasure to have had you on. Thanks so much for having me.